Welcome to the Productivity Podcast. Delighted today to be joined by Gary Newbury, who's a retail supply chain expert. Senior exec on call, I think, is the correct terminology, Gary? Yep, that's right. That's uh, what I'm doing in Canada. And how are you? How's life? Yeah, I'm going swimmingly well. Uh, we'd like to have uh, some of the loosening of restrictions that you've had in the UK recently. So looking forward to those days that we can get back to some form of normality. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, I won't. I won't talk about the new normal because I think that's a historic saying now. It's just the normal, isn't it? But um, yes. it, it's great to have you on, and really appreciate your time. I know you've got a wealth of experience around kind of all things supply, e-commerce, and all, all the bits that kind of centre that universe that makes sure that certainly in the retail world there's stock on the shelves for for people to sell. Yeah. Before before we get into the detail and, and have a conversation, let's find out a bit more about you. So can you give us a bit of a career history, Gary? Tell us about where you've worked, maybe how you landed in Toronto. It's not a very Canadian accent I'm picking up. That's right. I'm very British. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I uh, started my career, weirdly, uh, in, the, in the world of accounting and uh, kind of transitioned into, finally, into a situation where um, I, I, I was a you know, went up the, up the pole in terms of accountancy. Then I did an MBA and I came out of there and did a couple of operational turnarounds and quite enjoyed, you know, the, the fun of that because you were looking across across functions as opposed to just in one isolated uh, function itself. And I um, joined uh, Storehouse Distribution as it outsourced its uh, logistics to Excel Logistics, but there are many other contractors involved in that, including Christian Sowerson and BRS, to, just to date me. Uh, and, and there was a, a switch in strategy, having decentralised everything and uh, brought all the supply chain together. There was a change of heart at the, at the centre of the business. And they said, oh, we've got to decentralise the business and push the supply chain, or at least the logistics, back to each individual retail brand. And those brands included at the time, uh, British Home Stores, uh, Mother Care, Habitat, and a whole range of other smaller uh, smaller banners. And I joined the H Distribution and, and helped grow the organisation from... Uh, in, in Canadian terms, $35 million to $350 million in three years. Um, uh, and for those people who, who are sort of a, of a truck in persuasion, it included Bayless Distribution, Barnfather, and a few other bits and bobs that we acquired along the way, as well as growing the business. Uh, and, and then I did 18 years of um, independent work, working for a whole range of companies, including some very big names, Homebase, Sony, you name it. I've probably been in and around uh, the logistics and supply chains of those operations. And then I moved to Canada and uh, uh, was overcome by how different the weather was insofar as when when it got to about April, the sun came on and it didn't stop. <laughs> it was, uh, as we know from England, that... Um, you know, the sun goes, the sun comes on. You sort of rush around, grab ice cream, drink coke, whatever, because you know the next day might be miserable and uh, pretty plain. So uh, I, I spent the first year not doing very much at all, but the second year I, I spent networking and I found myself into a food service company for initially quite a small piece of work. It was to look at uh, how do you get uh, small deliveries off of the 
distribution fleet and put them onto a different format of vehicle, different operation. Uh, I, I thought that would take me two months, and the actual development of a concept did didn't really take much more than two months. But they they kept giving me more and more work, and five and a bit years later, I said that. Um, I think I need to get back to, back into main mainstream retailing because there's a lot of work to do here in Canada, especially coming from the UK. There's a very, in some ways, very relaxed here, <laughs> but they they believe they're highly competitive, and that's the the, the paradigm that um, they need to work through and try and get get into a stage where they can make some big moves that will catch them up. Their e-commerce, for instance up until pre-pandemic was something like about two and a half to three and a half percent of uh, total retail. I think the equivalent figure in the UK is somewhere between, I don't know, 13, 35. So it's a a complete different scale. Some of the factors behind that are are about, you know, that relaxed attitude and not really wanting to invest in something with an unproven ROI. And the other one is the geography of Canada. I mean, if anybody looks, at, grabs a map and said, we've only got like six or seven main centres in the second largest country in the world, quite a lot of it is, you know, if you look on certain different maps, they've got quite a lot of white, literally white space that's covered by Arctic uh, snow. But the, the most of the activity is something like uh, something like 90% of the people live within 200 miles of the US border. So it's... Uh, and that that strip lasts for about three thousand miles across. So it's it's a pretty high high logistical nightmare if you're trying to run you know a, a sort of a situation with which requires high density operations. Amazing, some some brilliant experience there, Gary. Some names I'm sure people are familiar with, and anybody who's listening in the UK right now, and it's uh, quite cold and gloomy. I'm sure will be jealous of your climate and weather. Oh, I don't know. It's minus 15 today. <laughs> it, high it, minus 15. <laughs> you, you, you're set up and you can take that and you'll get the extremes of the hot weather the other way. If it was minus, right. fift, if it was minus 15 here, I think uh, we'd be in a self-inflicted lockdown because we couldn't travel. <laughs> so anyway, so on, on to business. E- e-commerce you touched on, so I think that's a really good place t- to start. Uh, certainly in the UK, as you said, the, the proportion of, of e-commerce and if we include in that, you know, all the click and collect going out and coming back has grown significantly during the last two years, I think more more from the pandemic than anything. But those levels are, are staying. And it's interesting because I was doing some store visits in the UK, a couple of retailers over the last couple of weeks. And that there's a real dichotomy, I think, at the moment, because you've got retailers that have a good online platform. They'll generate lots of sales. They'll maybe have collect from store and return from store. But you've also got lots of retailers that are also seeing big growth in the likes of Uber Eats, Deliveroo, um, Just Eat for food product, but now also for vitamins, minerals, maybe um, medicines and all the other things. And my takeout from my visits were, and you may disagree or agree with this, the, the challenge is big and is getting bigger because as a retailer, I've historically maybe bolted on a cupboard or given some space in the warehouse for the stock to come in from that channel and the stock to go back. And that that channel's grown massively and now causes me a real headache because I'd probably want to lay the store out completely differently to cater for it. And, uh, and now I've got people coming in with 
Uber Eats bags, Just Eat bags to collect product as well on a short timeline to deliver out to customers when actually we've kind of forgotten about the customer that's in the store or in the queue. And I'll I'll take your thoughts on that and give you an example of something that I thought made my blood boil a little bit, I suppose, when I saw it. Yeah. Well, I, I um, would be interested to hear what you have to say about that. But I, I remember being on a podcast back in, it may have been 2019, yeah, towards the end of 2019, and it was designed to talk about systems and stuff about e-commerce. And actually it was with Retail Rethink, uh, Rethink Retail, sorry. And it, I actually changed the nature of a conversation. And it, we talked about Target because Target's often seen as one of the legacy retailers who've done a really good job of embracing both store traffic and, and e-commerce traffic together. But I said of most of the press cuttings I get when I read them, I think, right, you know, we're doing a great job. Uh, certainly at that time they were. But one thing I couldn't get my mind around, it, it, you know, we've both sort of got an aspect of warehouse in our background. Why would you pick from a store and not, you know, and on top of that, when you've got a team of target pickers, selecting selection guys going in to pick all these, uh, these orders that have just come in, you're sort of barging past the customer. You're you're now competing for the for the same goods on the shelf as a customer is, and as we go into peak, the you know the team gets bigger. They, they push harder to get the customers that way. As a customers, you know they're, they're coming at a, a great rate of knots. They want to secure their stock for um, you know for Christmas breaks and stuff like that. So I've always been an advocate of actually finding a way of not doing it in the store. And, uh, you know, the development of micro-fulfillment centres is a good step towards a different type of solution. It gives you so many other benefits, such as stock accuracy. So I'd be interested to, to hear what, what made your blood boil. What made my blood So I saw this twice on the same day, and I've seen it countless times since. And maybe now it's because I'm aware of it that I'm seeing it, rather than it's new. But I'll tell you the story. So visiting Retailer X uh, in the store, five or six customers in the queue. And this is a um, a retailer that sells, it's not a McDonald's type retailer, but a fast foodish retailer, let's say. And they, customers queuing, ordering, guy walks in with a just eat bag, walks straight to the front, picks up his order, colleague stops serving the customers in the queue, serves the guy with a just eat, guy goes out, serves the next customer, Another guy walks in with a just eat bag, stops serving the people in the queue, serves the guy with a just eat bag, walks out, starts serving. Now the queue's 10 or 11 people. And that this just happens, carries on, just eat, Uber Eats, uh, Deliveroo. And every time they come in, the customer in the queue, the physical one in front of them, gets parked and stopped and forgotten. And they service the um, the delivery partner. So I, I kind of thought... I get some of that because they're on a service level agreement to fulfill that order in X minutes and it's this, that and the other, but almost a physical customer in the store was became invisible in those moments of time. Yeah. So I, I thought there might just be the policy in that one store, move on, not a great experience, but is what it is. Went to another store, exactly the same thing happened. And I'm then starting to think this is a symptom of the fact that the store's not set up to deliver that capacity those different channels in a way which makes both customers feel important it feels like they're almost making a choice of this one's more important as soon as they go in even though i'm stood there looking you in the eye saying can i have two of these please it, it was a really bizarre thing and, and replicated as i say in the in a, a different brand in a different store pretty much instantly 
Yeah, and I think that um, if we just take that back to bricks and mortar uh, kind of retail Roman food service, I, I think there's some strong parallels there as well because if I want to secure my stock, I've learned that I can do it by e-commerce and I can just drive up to the store and some there's a lot of machinations and, and some guy, and I'm talking about it in a generic sense, uh, grabs it, my stuff and brings it out, runs out, uh, um, hurriedly to my to my to my vehicle. The boot goes up, puts the stuff in. Boot goes down. On your way, sir. Um, that same person could have been serving a customer in the store. So there there is this sort of strange, I would say, intermediary world that we're going through before the pandemic. Certainly over here in Canada, where e-commerce wasn't a big feature. Uh, you know, it was a store traffic and, you know, that was the attention of, of stores. But now we've got click and collect or boppis or, or whatever you like to call it, where, you know, the, the, the same format of store, the same organization of store is actually servicing two channels. And I would argue perhaps not doing it particularly well. And many, what I, I, th- I think many of us would say is go in, place you know if you're an executive in one of these organizations no matter how well you think you're designing your process sitting in the c-suite the ballroom wherever it might be and issuing misses by email communication means actually go onto your website order something and and just follow all the way through and see what what who you meet along that way and see what you know what put your Put yourself in the in the shoes of a customer. What would their experience really be? Not your designed experience, but your actual experience. And then do a compare and contrast and work out what you need to do in your store, in your food service outlet, whatever it might be, to try and bring your, your thoughts into line with reality or bring reality closer to where you want it to be. But that often requires quite a lot of uh, process re-engineering, maybe infrastructural changes, uh, but certainly a lot of training with the people who are delivering these potentially two channels of uh, operations. Yeah, and b- back to your kind of micro-fulfillment centre example, it's interesting, isn't it, that for those organisations that pick from store, if you think about that, journey that you've described in terms of following the stock will turn up somebody will replenish it to the shelf so we've touched it once then dependent on when your pickers pick a picker might pick it so that organization has touched it twice they'll probably tidy up as they pick it so you've maybe touched other products you may pick it and leave it out of stock so again the customer that's walking in the store is faced with the out of stock and the customer that's ordered through the online channel has had it picked. Yes. So it, it's a, it's this cyclical, I suppose, order of priorities or order of process, which potentially could, could mean that the physical customer has less chance of buying that product than the virtual customer. Yeah. And this has been the little, I want to say whiz that, e-commerce has become more attractive not because of the convenience of it you know because many people portray it as you know the convenience of e-commerce actually it's a way of me especially during these times of all this uh, disruption particularly around the supply chain and surety of you know 
product being where I want it, if I order it online and it commits to me and it takes my money, all now I have to do is either wait for it to turn up if it's a home delivery or go to the store and pick it up without all the hassle of wondering, will I have it or not? Or will I have to, will I have to make a substitution in real time if I'm a physical customer? It's interesting. Some of it comes back to kind of business models, didn't it? And I know we talked offline about kind of high stock term models that that need some form of improvement in terms of all the face, all the tasks that are being challenged in store now. I know, like us, you see lots of people using the kind of lean banner as a way of tackling projects or business models or um, stripping out process. Is that a good approach, do you think, in terms of looking at this whole e-commerce problem is using that kind of lens without it becoming a big cost-cutting exercise? I I think that uh, there's a lot of stuff in there that you've sort of tabled uh, because there are perhaps two models of how e-commerce operates. One is... You, you take the stock, the majority of the stock for both the store and the e-commerce the channel to the closest place to the to the customer, which is typically the store, and then you you, you are able to fulfil store orders or or e-commerce orders from that locality. Or alternatively, you have a, a situation where you say, okay, the stock comes into the main warehouse. And it's split at that point. So if a customer wants to click and collect, we actually pick it in the warehouse and find some way of sending it to the store or to the home address all the way from the warehouse, which is often nowhere near where the customer lives. So each one of those has some pluses and minuses. I I quite like the idea that the the potential e-commerce stock goes with the big truck, goes to the store and gets handled into, into singles in the normal way. The MFC might sit in sit in the way of that in terms of like you have to decant it into singles to put it into a micro fulfillment center, and the decision then becomes: Do you put everything in the micro fulfillment center and then feed out once a day a replenishment run across the whole store, or or do you have some other policy working there? The thing about lean is there's some basic principles in lean, and they're not always well understood but lean is a term that's often used to describe uh how would say a, a, a pretty ill-conceived approach to helping the business to have a sustainable line of profitability so in the real lean world uh, if, if we like look at you know archetypal company like Toyota, and we try and draw something from that and then start to think about it within the context of e-commerce. Toyota's worked out over 75, 80 years that I respond to demand. So I don't make anything until I'm very close to the actual demand signal. And as a result of that, I need to have my manufacturing capacities around me very close to hand and, and we work together to see how this demand is developing, then I can actually make a batch of one and I can actually pass that through my system and satisfy the customer within you know, depending on how you know which what model you have or how much variation you have on that. But basically if if I go into a dealer, I say I want a Toyota Toyota Corolla uh, they'll probably give you oh we'll have it with you in a week you know what color you know what what street seat, uh, seat trim etc etc but that's only possible when your production capacity is literally 
around your assembly uh, factory and you're responding to demand and you've worked out all the tools and techniques that are required to be able to do a batch of one. What we have in the retail world is we have forecasts. We have forecasts going out maybe nine months a year, maybe two or three seasons in that. And we place, we, we break down that demand into sort of weekly orders and we send that across to, from Canada across to, to China or Vietnam or somewhere in the Far East. And they make up containers worth and they put it onto a boat and it brings it over here. The customer doesn't feature into this. And the, and the time phasing of or the temporal disp- disposition of this is the customer does not feature in this equation whatsoever. So we're guessing that the customer will want the stuff we've ordered for them six months ago, nine months ago. It will arrive, we're, we're putting it in the distribution center, we push it out to stores. There's no pull in here, there's, everything's a push. And we're conduct digital marketing campaigns. We do ads on telly, digital spend, whatever it is to try and persuade the customer, this is what you need. It seems a bit, seems a bit, you know, I would say uh, counterintuitive that that would be, that would deliver a superior result to somebody who was driven by demand. So in e-commerce, we uh, are likely in the retail setting, we are trapped in that same world. But the difficulty with e-commerce is we're talking about singles, we're talking about randomized demand, and the only way we can try and control that demand is by running quite aggressive digital marketing uh, efforts, you know, television, whatever it might be, to try and control or try to manage the availability of our product and the appetite of customers to come and want that product. So it's yeah the as a result of that, what we have uh, and for a long time we've had in retail is this idea or this notion that if we can just improve our stock turns, everything's great in the, great in the garden. That if we reduce our effectively investment in inventory. Uh, um, and we we have we're faced with broadly constant sales. Our return on capital employed around inventory or Jim Roy is the internal phrase uh, can look good as long as we get our salary right. But what happens there is the the what I see that's happened there is that companies have sometimes slash inventory to try and force the number to look like they're in control. Um, And that's a rather dangerous thing because when when companies like Toyota have reduced inventory, there's often an infrastructure around them and there's a commitment to, uh, within their teams, commitment to understand the impacts of that in real time and to act on those impacts so that they don't damage the flow of a business and the service to the customer. Whereas an accountant or you know, even an operating manager saying, Let, let's, you know, let's slash off $10,000 worth of uh, stock this week because, you know, we're, our sales are a bit low. So we've got to look, make the figure look good. So let's, let's not order some stuff or um, let's put it on promotion or whatever it might do to accelerate sales or reduce stock just to get to a number rather than think about the whole process about what its purpose is designed to do. 
And then if we find that inventory is too high, we start to reduce that, but we have everybody engaged in that process and everybody's looking for you know um, adverse impact and then acting on those adverse impact so we can lower the stock levels with some comfort uh, and confidence. And I don't think that's like, that's not in retail thinking. It's just cut the stock uh, and get the number right. And, and that's an unfortunate thing. Yeah, and we, we see lots of retailers that will maybe hold more lines but less stock so they they increase the range in effect but hold less lines which then ultimately means that you need to deliver more so it, it becomes self-fulfilling to some degree of more line more range more deliveries therefore there's more trunking that goes on there's more handling of the stock that goes on there's more counting of the stock that goes on there's more pricing of the stock that goes on but they feel comforted by the fact now they sell 50,000 lines instead of 20,000 lines yeah that, and that, that's that's the dilemma of retailing is that uh, what we've learned over a long period of time is that um, when we when we start a, a banner a brand we go to market and we get some success. We think, I'll tell you what, let's put some more stores up there. Okay, let's build another 10 stores and we're still making some success. But suddenly the, the, the sales aren't really, you know, you get into that point of diminishing return. So I'll tell you what, let's make some bigger stores. Right, now we've got some bigger stores. Let's throw more stuff in them. And, and there's a point where you even with that model, you get to a sense of diminishing returns. So you've actually hit the sort of, I want to say, the limit of a market. You've plateaued. You've let's hope you've you've been in maturation. You haven't already gone in decline. So if you've got static sales, the only thing you can focus on to to improve your profitability is your costs. So then you start to look at your the basic costs of retail are you know primarily merchandise and, and the labor. So the first thing you can do very easily is just to slash the, the floor uh, staff. So you, you you look at their hours, you take out head, whatever. Then you start looking at the merchandise and go, well, where can I find this like a lot cheaper? So, yeah, that's that was behind the driver for moving to sourcing in the Far East because it is relatively a lot cheap, not not just marginally cheaper, a lot cheaper at the time in the 1980s, 1990s, and certainly early 2000s. But the, 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 the trouble is we've lost a sense of purpose. What Our, our brand started serving a, a, a discrete market segment with a certain type of problem solution but in our distraction um to go after sales we just added in more categories and whatever and we're doing this in essence on marketplaces now we we did that in stores now we're doing it on marketplaces so we're adding more and more categories more and more stuff on on the marketplace to to try to boost sales but i think that you know for any retailer having emerged from this pandemic in 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 some shape, I think that they need to revisit the purpose that they existed in the first place. That may have changed slightly because consumers are, over the last two years have changed their, their aspirations and their appetite for things. But they need to retune into that and actually look around and go, do you know what? We need to get rid of some of these categories because there's people who can do these better. We're not making the margins on these that we, we would like to make. And we just focus on a, a relatively smaller uh, range assortment that actually meets our customers' requirements, and we can actually then start to get 
in some ways, if we if we become very good at, we can actually start to get ahead of the consumer and help them down a down a path that they come to us more regularly because we're offering not only just a solution, we're delighting them with that solution. Rather than saying, "Hey, come to us," we sell pretty much everything. We're a Walmart. We're a, you know in local speak, we're a Canadian Tire kind of thing. And that that comes back interestingly, kind of brings us full circle almost. Of where we're seeing certainly in the UK and Europe, lots more collaboration. So people deciding. And a, a good example is, uh, I suppose, some of the bigger supermarkets in the UK historically have all had coffee shops or cafes. Most of them now have outsourced that to Costa or Starbucks or a specialist coffee chain because they've realised that it's very costly for them to do it. They don't do it as well and they've not got the pull. Actually, make a bit of money off the, the space but have the experts do it. Therefore, they can free up that team's time and resource and the central team to focus on being really good at being a core supermarket and delivering that purpose and those values. Do you think that that trend is going to carry on as people come back around that circle that you described of being really good at what their purpose should deliver, which may mean that they have to partner with experts in other areas to build a better overall proposition? Yeah, I, I think... Uh, it, it... I would argue it's inevitable because there'd be a point. Uh, I think we've we've been through various points of diminishing returns, and we have tried to bolt things on to try and bolster ourselves and bolster our um, or, or avoid that. You know, on the on the retail concept life cycle, which looks like a product life cycle, we, as we start to look at decline in terms of revenue and profitability, uh, we, we're we don't want to do the hard work of reinvention. So all we do is add a few more categories in hope that buys us another, you know, few quarters or a year before, you know, maybe we've moved on <laughs> or something else has happened in the marketplace. So I, I think, yeah, it, um, the collaborations you, you talk of, are, are you know, I, I've certainly experienced those in the UK with certainly Costa was in uh, my local Tesco's. And I think that that must be, the model that many retailers need to look at if if they want to say if you're if you understand your purpose and you start to rein in your 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 categories your your assortment to to be very specific about what that purpose is but you think it would actually be great to bring more traffic in and have a small restaurant a small coffee shop or you know um, a dry cleaner or whatever it might be that would that would connect with our customer in a in a much more meaningful way on top of what we're doing then it would be natural to do that but where i'd be coming from as well one of the things that i uh, are desperate to see a changing and i had this conversation very recently on one of my podcasts is that we've been through this pan- we're still working through this pandemic and I've been advocating for quite some time that what we need to do is go towards smaller format stores. So, you know, sort of thousand, two thousand, you know, up to five thousand square foot stores, less aisles. And in fact, it's more about the brand than buying. So you go into the store uh, and you experience a brand and, and, and the brand's all about it. The, the people on the uh, retail side are trying to 
help you understand the brand more clearly, helping you to order some stuff or, or, you know, buy some stuff and have it delivered to home or click and collect, whatever it might be. So it's not those aisles and aisles and aisles of product where you have to wander around and figure out where each one is. And, you know, certainly in my experience at Tesco's (laughs) before I left a the left the UK was they kept changing a few things around and that was meant to create interest and excitement. It did nothing else than cause massive frustration and make me wonder, should I be shopping here? Should I nip down the road and go to Sainsbury's who probably involved in another version of that? So I think that we're going to see a more, if if we think about the digital natives, they, when they decide that the best way for us to, uh, improve ourselves is to actually go to stores they tend to have smaller stores you know uh, you know the, the thousand two thousand square foot kind of format and it is very experiential versus uh you know, buying stuff you know they, they don't immediately go to the you know rows and rows of aisles and product they they, they, they think about what do we want to say to our customer about us what do we want the customer to learn about us and how do we want the customer to engage and, and uh, be loyal with us? So I think that for the larger format stores, there will be collaborations, but for brands who are really got that focus on purpose, they may actually go to a much smaller format store, which would in some ways not allow them to do too much collaboration because there won't be the space to do it. Yeah, yeah, and maybe someone like Apple's heading that way or leading that way from what you've described the experiential piece the product is i won't say the product is clearly central for them but it's not the it's not the obvious thing when you go into the store it's the aesthetics it's the feel an apple yeah. store is pretty much in a cool location looks cool the people in there are pretty cool and all and all experts i think they call them apple geniuses are they in in the product uh, right. you can you can go and learn you can go and chill out you can play with the product and, and ultimately, they want you to buy into the brand because once you buy the watch, you'll buy the phone. Once you buy the phone, yeah. you'll buy the iPad. So it, it's a jump in at any point on this loop because once you're in, it's kind of difficult to move back to Android or Samsung or a, a different kind of operating system. Yes. Gary, it, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure to catch up. A couple of things uh, from me final question that everybody gets on the podcast is what's the best bit of business advice you've ever been given well i think i've been given lots along the way and i've also uh, through working with lots of different organizations learned a lot but i think the um one for me uh, that's really stuck in my mind for for the last couple of years is there's a guy called george menakakis who i've met here in canada and he's written a few books and the last but one book he wrote was, I think it was a great, great transition or something. And he wrote it about, I think, a, was it three or four years ago, I think, and sneaked into one of the chapters and you know, he, he sort, of, sort of shrugged his shoulders when I t- talked to him about, you know, said lots of other things, was this statement. And it really, it was like a gleaming light. And it said, for those companies who keep, particularly retail, keep saying, well, what's, what's Amazon doing? What's what Amazon doing? We need to do more of what Amazon's doing. Or, you know, latterly it might even be, you know, if you're south of board, what Target are doing or even what Walmart might be doing. But he said, uh, competitors are not the enemy. The, the inability to create trends is. 
And I think that this is a really powerful, profound statement. It's almost up there with, in my mind, with some of the things that Deming came out with in the sense of if we can't understand our purpose and take our customers on a journey where we're actually getting ourselves into some kind of blue ocean situation, then of course we're going to be obsessed with what the competitor's doing because we're just following. And as a result of following, we'll have lower margins. We'll be on the, on the periphery of things. We'll have no loyalty. And, you know, in terms of forward development path, we just wait for somebody else to do something. Then we'll study that, reverse engineer it, and try and do it in, in our store network, whatever, you know, format we're in. So I think that's a really – for anybody um, – listening to this part of the uh, the podcast i think i'll just challenge them and just say you know are you setting trends in your business for your customers are you taking them on a journey or are you just watching if you're a retailer are you just watching amazon what are they up to are doing drones you know uh, airship warehouses oh better do some of that no stop following everybody else know your stuff and get in front of your customers no, I love that one. That's one of the, one of the best ones we've had, Gary. And uh, yeah, absolutely agree. If you're sat watching, then to some degree you're moving backwards while everybody else is moving forwards and making the gap bigger. It's certainly we know in retail you've got to be at the forefront, otherwise you just don't survive these days. Yeah. Absolutely. So if if people want to find out more about you, Gary, listen to your podcast. Where's the best place for them to reach out and do that? Uh, they can. Uh... Go on to YouTube Retail Aid. It's all one string, Retail AID, uh, or uh, find me on LinkedIn or find me on Retail Aid at LinkedIn. Uh, And I've got my own website, uh, retailaid.ca. Very parochial. Yep. Uh, So there's bags of information and resources out there. The the YouTube channel's slowly getting in popularity. We have some. I have some excellent guests on there. Some, you know, there's um, some people you might even bump into: Carl Bate, Jeff Roberts, who's in London, yep. uh, Simeon Sigel, who's a, a equity analyst who loves retail. And uh, I think on Friday we also had Rosalind Griner in there. And we were talking about this very subject. We sparked from a conversation with Britain Ladd, who said given what Macy's are doing, we're trying to split up their e-commerce and, and Saks have done splitting up their e-commerce from a stores business. Why don't we just do it for the whole whole of uh, – why don't we do it for the whole of uh, retailing? And we sort of explored all the ins and outs of that. So that podcast will be coming out pretty soon. Brilliant. And we'll put some links in the show notes so people can find it. Gary, once again, absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming on and appreciate your time. Okay, thanks very much, Simon, and uh, good luck with your, your your situation in the UK and hope we, uh, Canada can catch up with you soon. Thanks.